Our reading for this morning is from the prophet Zephaniah, which you can find on page 933 of the Pew Bibles, starting from chapter 1, verse 7. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the princes and king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be ruined. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. They will build houses but not live in them. They will plant vineyards but not drink the wine. The day of the Lord is near near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter, the shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. Continuing from chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Then will I purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. On that day, you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. But I will leave within you the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. This is the word of the Lord. I was probably up too late last night. And one of the things I do sometimes, maybe too often, is I like load Facebook and then there's nothing interesting and so I refresh Facebook and then there's nothing interesting still. And so maybe I pull up Instagram on my phone and I do that a couple of times and then when all is exhausted, I load Twitter. And so when I loaded my Twitter feed last night, I saw a hashtag trending that I can't say I expected. 
hashtag Christian privilege. And I have to admit, my first reaction was a lot like this. This is going to be good. This will be interesting. And the hashtag was full of a fair amount of poignant criticism of popular American Christianity and some American Christians. But in various ways, it was also reflective of the Christian church in the West more generally. How we have been prone to nationalism, to abuse of the power that we've become far too accustomed to, prone to protecting ourselves long before we love our neighbors and feeling that despite everything we may hear from this pulpit or from the words and actions of Jesus, that we are in fact right in doing so. And so naturally, the response went about as well as anybody familiar with Twitter could have expected. It quickly devolved into defensiveness and hyperbole instead of receiving the criticism for what it is and trying to be better than what others have seen in us. This is, I fear, another benefit of Western Christianity and the privilege that came with two millennia of the church being centered in the cultural discourse, of the church calling all the shots, that we've grown unable to receive criticism something that I think Protestants, and especially those of the Reformed and always Reforming variety, should be much better at. This is not at all dissimilar to the reality in Zephaniah's day. Zephaniah was prophesying in and to the city of Jerusalem sometime after a significant chunk of their population had been taken, stolen, brought into exile and captivity in Babylon. And he's prophesying in a time when Jerusalem, it remembers its greatness. And it acted as if it deserved a life far better than the life its neighbors knew. Far better than it now had because of this captivity. The people who remained behind in Jerusalem, well, they were quick to claim the title of being God's people in God's city. But they were practical people, so they hedged their bets too. Their priests continued to go about God's business in the temple, but they also started to wear the clothes and vestments of foreign gods. After all, who knows what ritual act would actually protect them in the end. Business people were keen to continue to sell the necessary objects for worship in the temple, but who knew how long this worship in the temple could go on for? And so they figured it was better to settle accounts with unfair scales and to begin to hoard more and more silver for oneself and for one's family. They were so far gone to this end, in fact, that God names it. God says these leftover, lethargic, soured, complacent people, they take advantage of the poor. They don't care about the city that they're living in. And they genuinely believe the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. God doesn't care, they say. Of course God doesn't care. Half our city has been taken into captivity in Babylon. God didn't care about them when they were taken, and God doesn't care about us now when we're just making the best of a bad situation. God doesn't care about my unbalanced scales. Why would the Lord look at such a small thing? God doesn't care about the brawls in the temple. Surely the Most High has better things to worry about. 
God doesn't care about the worship of these foreign gods in our midst. Otherwise, our protector would not have handed our own people over to our enemies who worship those same idols. These are the thoughts that must have gripped their hearts and minds in those days. I think, Knox, that we must also believe that God doesn't care, that the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. We have to believe that on some level, at least some of the time, or else we would not go about our lives in the ways that we do. Taking the same kinds of actions that these, our spiritual forebearers, did to ensure that no matter what, and especially if we happen to be right that God moved on from caring some time ago, that in the end we'll be able to take care of ourselves. We make little time for the stranger in our midst. We know that God may say to watch out for the foreigner, but God will do nothing, and so we don't have time. We give very little to the poor who surround us, telling ourselves that, you know what, they'll likely just use my toonie for drugs. And surely we have better use of that toonie for things that satisfy our own pleasure and meet our own needs. We take advantage of whatever situation we may to get ourselves ahead of others. And we leave them often in much worse situations than we are, wanting and in need. And we tell ourselves that we may be able to help them, but not today, maybe in the future when we're much more better off. What's more, we see how the wicked prosper in our world. We see how it's happening still today, and we affirm for ourselves again the truth that God surely must not care. Righteous people die in their righteousness, and the wicked prolong their lives by evil means. Surely this is a God who will do nothing, good or bad, if it's even a God at all. That's where we are so often. That's where these people were. But contrary to what those complacent people thought, contrary to the stories that we tell ourselves, God does, has always, and will forever care. It is out of the depth of this care that we hear those very Old Testament-sounding words. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and deep darkness. That sounds harsh. Our first reaction is probably discomfort. We don't like wrath, right? Most of us in this room probably feel as though we've had our fair share of distress and anguish in life and we've had enough of it. But there's a goodness here. There's a goodness here because it tells us that God cares after all. The cheating merchants, the fickle priests, the people who hide their sin under the name of the Most High God, the wicked will not be ignored. God will act. In Zephaniah's time, there was another prophet who was living in Jerusalem at the same time as he was. And that prophet was named Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of the major prophets in the Bible. He's kind of a big deal, so you won't hear much about him this summer. But through Zephaniah and Jeremiah, God gives two very similar 
but completely opposite messages. The message that he gives to Zephaniah is to be shared with the people who are still in Jerusalem, the people who are still comfortable and at home and behaving in the ways we've talked about. And God says their wealth will be plundered. The houses they build, they're not going to live in them. The gardens they plant, they're not going to enjoy them. Then, through Jeremiah, God speaks from the same city, but to the exiles away in Babylon, to the people far from home. And God says, you know what? Go ahead, build houses. You're going to live in them. Go ahead and plant gardens. Those gardens will feed you. God will act. Two messages at the same place, at the same time, to very different people. God is making clear that he will act. God will act to undo the injustice of even people who are quick to claim allegiance to God, but by their lives and by their works betray a heart that is more concerned with themselves than with God, more concerned with success and comfort than with justice, more concerned about getting ahead even if it means stepping on the faces of those beneath them. And God says he will act. God will act and the way God acts will secure a future for those people who have often known trouble and hardship, but who choose to turn in faith toward God instead of turning away in fear. I think I know the reason why we all so often say that this Old Testament God makes us uncomfortable. Why this Old Testament day of the Lord and his wrathful action makes us a little uneasy. And I think it's not because any of us object to the notion of undoing the unjust, right? Does anybody here have a problem with the wicked perishing? Probably not. Surely that is good news for all. But I think the reason we have a problem with things like this is because when we're most honest with ourselves, we can see ourselves as the ones who God vows will be overcome. We fear that our wealth will be taken away from us, that our work might be done in vain. We would like to see ourselves as those exiles in Babylon. We like to imagine ourselves as the marginalized and the cast out who God regularly allies with and protects. But we see in stories and in texts like this one from Zephaniah that we may actually be the ones who've had it easier all along and yet take it upon ourselves to ensure that we're still more comfortable than God has allowed us to be already. We may be the ones who have forgotten the Lord while we worked for ourselves. After all, surely the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. The truth of the matter, as Zephaniah continues, is rather that the action of God is a whole lot more complex than simply the good or bad of the wicked being overcome. In Zephaniah 3, after God details how nations have been destroyed and God has been hoping for and anticipating that Jerusalem will return and soon repent, but they've still acted corruptly anyway, God finally continues by saying, therefore wait for me. Wait for the Lord? Surely the unrepentant people of Jerusalem, who've just heard the punishment that they can expect, have no interest in waiting. They'd rather not. Thanks. But Zephaniah goes on, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify 
I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. The day of the Lord is coming, Zephaniah says. It can't be avoided, God promises. But it's so good. Notice the pivot that happens in those verses. All my fierce anger, the world consumed by the fire of my jealous anger, then I will purify the lips of the nations. The people of the Lord, the day of the Lord rather, is a day of reconciliation. It's a day of binding people together. It's a day of drawing people closer to God. It's a day about lowering the proud and lifting up the ashamed. God's fire We read here, God's fire is not about the destruction of people. It's about purification. It's for people's restoration. What's destroyed here is not people. What's destroyed is sin. What's destroyed is shame and pride. What's destroyed is the fear that God's not looking out for us, so we'd better look out for ourselves. God comes in power and reconciles us to be able to work together, shoulder to shoulder, despite having experiences that are so different as remnant and exile, privileged and marginalized, successful and utter failures to the world. Despite all of our different views about politics, different cultural backgrounds, different ways of just being in the world, God longs for us to work shoulder to shoulder in our service to our maker. As Christians, reading this not as it was spoken, but so long after, we can see in Jesus Christ how this future has been made possible. And we affirm that one day it will come in its fullness. But in Zephaniah, here at least, we see the covenant of the New Testament foreshadowed. We see the promises of a God who will reconcile all things to himself. We see here the God of love and mercy hiding in plain sight. Zephaniah's message that God will bring nations together to work shoulder to shoulder was an unwelcome suggestion to a people who were confident that their friends and families being exiles in Babylon, well, that was just a temporary embarrassment. It was just a temporary embarrassment because we don't understand the weight of their glory. This was the nation of God. This was a temporary setback. Surely today we can see through their hubris. We can realize that the church's cultural marginalization is far more actually the norm of the church's global history than it is our temporary embarrassment We can see how God may be challenging us, too, to work shoulder to shoulder with even those who are unlike us, and in so doing, to bring the Lord glory and honor. Glory and honor in worship properly ascribed, yes, but also glory and honor in lives lived out to honor God, living out our lives as if God will act, living honest and generous lives, not needing to look out for ourselves first, but trusting that God will do that work for us. That whether we're at home in Jerusalem or far from all comfort in Babylon, God will speak to us. God will provide for us. 
God will give to us or take away from us as is necessary to jar us into the reality of the coming day of the Lord. This is God's promise to you. You will eat and lie down, and no one will make you afraid. There is provision and there is safety. There is protection in the flock of God. Your security, your next meal, these are the concerns of your shepherd who loves you and will act for you. Rest in that peace. In that peace, know that whatever work God does in your life, whether it's frustrating your evil plans or encouraging your good work even in hard places, remember the ways that God moves in us. Remember that however God moves, there is always life to the full. There are always good words of flourishing to speak. There are always good actions of justice to embody. Ultimately, I would say that there is a Christianity worthy of far more than criticism in a hashtag trending on Twitter. Know that you need never justify evil by saying, surely the Lord will not act for good or for bad after all, because the day of the Lord is coming. It's coming very quickly, and your future is secure in the God who made you. So you need not look out for yourself first. Your well-being is not dependent on the misery and misfortune of others. Life is not a zero-sum game. Knowing those truths, you can join instead in the work of God in caring for the poor and needy, in affirming the value and worth of even those who are unfathomably unlike you. You can join in welcoming strangers, widows, orphans, rich and poor, drug addicts, tax collectors, refugees, even the most vile people into the triumph song of life because you know that on the coming day, in God's coming kingdom, you will be working shoulder to shoulder, all for the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and forevermore. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, help us. Help us to see the ways that you provide for us. Help us to know your goodness even in the most difficult times. Help us to believe that you are a God who acts and that you welcome us as your church into your actions of love and mercy. That the day of the Lord is coming that your kingdom will be fully revealed and that we get to live as if it's already here in its fullness. Open our hearts, Lord. Break the hearts of stone that tell us that we really need to behave in the ways that we do because we can't depend on you. And transform them into hearts of love and trust.
Remind us of your promises through Zephaniah. That even on the most difficult day, you will not let us be put to shame, not even for our sin, but that you truly will rejoice over us with singing. Thank you for rejoicing over us, God. Amen.